Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. On the campaign trail and as president, Donald Trump has promised to build a wall along the border between the United States and Mexico. This episode is the second half of a conversation that I had with Brookings senior fellow Vonda Felbab-Brown on the true costs of building a wall on the southern border. She is an expert on insurgency, organized crime, urban violence, and illicit economies, and has traveled widely for her research, including to Afghanistan, Burma, the Andean region, and Mexico. And she is the author of a new Brookings essay titled The Wall, The Real Costs of a Barrier Between the United States and Mexico. In part one of the conversation, which you can find at brookings.edu bcp, we discussed the price tag of building a wall for both the U.S. government and for communities in both the U.S. and Mexico along the border, as well as what effect a wall would have on drug smuggling. In this half of the conversation, I asked Vonda about a wall's effects on crime and violence in America and on jobs, trade, and the environment. Stay tuned in this episode for another installment of our Coffee Break series, a chance to meet new Brookings experts. Today, meet Jay Shambaugh, Senior Fellow and New Director of the Hamilton Project at Brookings. You can get the latest show information by following the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. And now, here's part two of my interview with Vonda Feldbab-Brown. We know that Donald Trump launched his presidential campaign two summers ago by characterizing certain Mexicans in ways that I won't repeat here, but he has called the undocumented immigrants a problem contributing to crime in America. He's talked about gang violence, and we talk a lot about the so-called sanctuary cities. You write in the essay, although President Trump has railed against the carnage of crime in the United States, the crime statistics, with few exceptions, tell a very different story. So what is that different story? Violence in the United States peaked in 1991. At the time, there were just under 25,000 murders in the U.S., and steadily violence has gone down. In fact, while Mexico has been struggling with this extraordinary violence, the story of the United States over the past 30 years is really tremendous reduction in all kinds of violent crime, homicides, violent robberies just all manner of statistics. And there are many speculations in criminology what allowed, or many hypotheses, what allowed for that decline in violence. But it's been steady and robust. The first year that violence, however, did, in terms of homicides, not other kind of violent crime, did go up was 2015, where all of a sudden there was a jump of about 1,000 murders per year. So in 2014, 14,300 people roughly were victims in homicides. And in 2015, that's jumped to 15,700. Nonetheless, it's still much less than the 1991 baseline where you had almost 9,000 more murders that year. And it still puts the U.S. on an average murder rate of less than 5 per 100,000, which is much more than Europe has. It's much more than East Asia has, where the numbers are one under one, maybe two per 100,000, but it's still much less than the U.N., measure of an epidemic of murders, which is 10 per 100,000 and much less than elsewhere in Latin America. Now, there were three cities that accounted for this jump in violence. The violence was not in uniform. It was Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and Chicago. All three places share some of the broad characteristics that often are correlated with violent crime. 
poor relations between communities and police, particularly between ethnic and racial minorities and police, problematic police departments with often histories of racial abuse and lack of accountability, high poverty rate, higher than the national average, high income and racial disparities, and high unemployment. And of course, this is taking place in the wake also of the Ferguson issued the killing of Michael Brown and the riots that explode and the sense among African-Americans that black lives don't matter and big tensions between police department, law enforcement, and particularly African-American minority, but other minorities as well. But nonetheless, the following year, both in Baltimore and in Washington, D.C., homicides went down. In Chicago, they didn't. And Chicago is the very troubled place where homicides are out of control, They are mostly related to gang violence and gang rivalries, sometimes over local drug distribution markets, other times over many other issues, um, such as simply rivalry, revenge, sense of honor that drive much of the violence. But, however, this portrayal by President Trump that the U.S. is in a state of carnage is not correct. Crucially to our story and the wall, however, the vast majority of homicides and violent crime in the United States are not committed by immigrants. They are committed by native-born American men. It's very sad when anybody is the victim of violent crime, especially a homicide. It's tragic for their family, no matter who commits it. But it seems like President Trump has managed to really rhetorically use this idea that undocumented immigrants are somehow committing more violent crime than ever before, than native-born people. Yes, it's just statistically false. Yes, there are people that were non-native born and that perhaps didn't have legal status in the United States who have committed crimes, including very serious crimes. But they are a minority. They are a strong minority of offenders. President Trump has claimed that he wants to prioritize deportations of those violent offenders. In fact, that's already what the Obama administration did. In the latter years of the Obama administrations, they really prioritized deporting them. But what President Trump's immigration policies are just much broader dragnets of people who have lived in the United States for a long time and never violated any serious laws. And sadly, you know, it's not just a matter of sort of misguided policy focus in terms of not accomplishing the objective of making U.S. communities safer. It's actually directly counterproductive. Both the George W. Bush administration and the early Obama administration flirted with policies of trying to either allow or direct local law enforcement to go after undocumented workers, such as motivated or undocumented people such as motivated by this notion that we want to reduce crime. And steadily, that approach turned out counterproductive, where police departments, in fact, learned that they severely jeopardize their relationship with the community, that they would, in fact, put themselves more in the positions of the Ferguson, like protest, the rejection of the police, So one of the striking things about the U.S. and Mexico has been how very peaceful the United States is and how very violent Mexico is. And that striking difference is despite the fact that Mexican drug trafficking groups are the major suppliers of drugs to the United States, by far the major ones. They operate via local proxies, but they are the big wholesale suppliers. And they behave, however, in the U.S. 
very peacefully. They would never dare to do here what they do in Mexico. And that's because over decades, U.S. law enforcement really improved and really developed effective deterrence capacity and much improved relations with local communities. But by forcing U.S. law enforcement officials to go after undocumented workers to essentially carry out dragnets in Latino neighborhoods, those relationships will be severed. And they are already being severed. One of the difficult crimes in the U.S. is domestic abuse. It's a difficult crime to get handle on because often victims do not report crime. Particularly difficult area of domestic abuse has been domestic abuse in immigrant communities, where it took years of effort and progress to reach out to spouses, mostly women, who were abused by their husbands or partners to report crime. And often that the crucial element of it was that they would not be deported or their family relatives would not be deported just because they denounced domestic abuse. But we already see in the first half year of the uh, Trump administration that this reporting has massively declined, that there is so much fear in the Latino community that people will be rounded up and deported, that the community is not denouncing crimes. And the more the community doesn't denounce crimes to police, the more crime, of course, thrives. And the more the relationship between police and severities, the more homicides go up. So in variety of crimes, homicides, kidnapping, domestic abuse, good relations with the police, essential willingness of the police to report crime is crucial. And by making law enforcement chase after peaceful residents who have children here and spouses here and who lived here for decades and more, that relationship is severed and seeing that unfold already. Let's take a quick break here to meet Jay Shambaugh, director of The Hamilton Project. My name is Jay Shambaugh. I am the director of The Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies here at Brookings. I grew up on Long Island, um, just outside New York. What inspired me to become a scholar is the fact that I've always had a deep interest in policy. And over time, as I got more education, I started to realize that I wasn't just interested in doing policy, although I was interested in that, but I was really interested in the research. And both the research and the teaching side of being in academia appealed to me and just the opportunity to do research into policy is something that over time I just became more and more interested in thinking of, you know, who is it that's figuring out what ideas work and what ideas don't and what policies help people's lives and what don't. And, and so I just found myself gravitating over towards, towards the research side and being a scholar of public policy. I think one of the most important issues that I see us facing today is figuring out how do we adjust to shocks in the economy? And I think for a, a long time, there was an optimistic view of the U.S. economy, which I think was true at various points in time, that we had an extremely flexible economy and one that we were able to reallocate people, capital, whatever it was, towards new regions, towards new sectors of the economy, et cetera. And that's something that happened relatively fluidly. I think that's probably always was an overly optimistic view of how things happened. I think there was more truth to it previously. And I think as we've seen certain shocks hit the U.S. economy over the last 30, 40 years, 
especially over the last 20, it feels like either different regions or different sectors or different types of workers, after they get knocked down, don't get back up as easily as they used to. And I think that's one of the things that we see putting pressure in politics and political economy, but also just a fundamental issue for us as people interested in public policy around economics to figure out what is it we're supposed to be doing here. And that it touches on a whole bunch of different areas, but how do you deal with either a sector or a region that has gotten hit hard? Right now, I'm working on a few different things. Now at the Hamilton Project, we're jumping into a variety of things that Hamilton is working on. We have a large event coming up about women's role in the economy and thinking about how different public policies might need to be reoriented, thinking about the fact that many of the rules and labor laws and things like this were written a long time ago and maybe with a different workforce in mind. In terms of things that I've personally been working on at Hamilton, we're also really kicking off a lot of work around wages. And I think thinking about why has wage growth been lower than we think maybe it normally should be? What are some of the factors that contribute to wage growth? And what are some of the different choices in public policy we might be able to make that would help wage growth go faster and help people kind of see their living standards rise more quickly? My own personal work, when I do research on my own, I do a lot of work that's empirical work and usually in international and macroeconomics and think a lot lately about some of these questions. I've already talked about how we deal with different shocks hitting the economy on the one hand. I'm also personally just lately fascinated by the way demography has put a lot of impact into what's happening with growth in the U.S. economy and I think also in the global economy, both in terms of how people's labor force participation obviously changes as they get older, but also how the age of the workforce seems to have some impact on productivity growth as well. And so those are some areas that I'm just personally very interested in. I remember once about 20 years ago, I believe it was Rudy Dornbush, who was a great international macroeconomist, said to a, a group of students once, he said, if you're not reading a book on China, at least, you know, once every other month, you're doing it wrong. And this was, say, in the mid-90s. And I think, you know, if you now look back over the last 20 years, you see that was one of the big shocks that hit both the U.S. and global economy was incorporating China into the world economy. And so I think in a similar vein, I would say reading about artificial intelligence is really interesting. I think there's sometimes more almost overly worried views of it in the near term, thinking like no one's going to have a job in five years. And I think that view of the world is not right. I want to be clear about that. But I think we're sometimes taught between these two dystopias. There's the one where the robots take all our jobs, and there's the one where we don't have any productivity growth anymore. And they don't necessarily fit together because if the robots take all our job, that's because we've had so much productivity growth. And if we have no productivity growth, it's because we didn't figure out how to use the robots. But in both of those stories, the role of artificial intelligence winds up being really important. And so there's a book by Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee, coming out of MIT called The Second Machine Age, which I think is a really interesting book that just kind of walks through primarily the technology and how the technology has moved much faster than many people thought, but also really thinking about what that means to the economy and public policy and individuals' lives. You can find The Hamilton Project at hamiltonproject.org. move on to the next topic that you focus on in the Brookings essay, and that's whether or not the wall would hurt the U.S. economy. 
the big question is, do immigrants steal jobs in the U.S. and lower wages for American workers? So the overwhelming evidence is no, at least not very significantly. Many studies have showed that the effect of immigration, both legal and illegal immigration, on jobs is very small, very marginal, and that immigrants mostly affect both wages and employment of some of the most underprivileged U.S. residents, which is significant, of course. Those are people who would be high school dropouts. Those are people who might be prior immigrants and who are affected by the new influx of immigrants. So people who have very low skills and find it very difficult to have any flexibility in employment and, in fact, have very poor human capital and find it difficult to compete. So these people are affected, and clearly U.S. policies need to be geared toward how to help, how to empower those people, how to provide them with education and skills so they can find legal, effective employment. Much of people, particularly undocumented workers, many immigrants, however, work in jobs that legal U.S. residents do not want. They are some of the most difficult, backbreaking jobs in agriculture, Perhaps the most notorious one is the seafood and fish cutting industry. Very tough job, very physically demanding, quite unpleasant. And many sort of revelations over the past decade of conditions sometimes akin to slavery around the world, but also similar exposures about a decade ago in the United States. So it's these jobs where vast number of fresh immigrants end up in. Immigrants, however, are also crucial for the U.S. economy in other ways. The U.S. birth rates have gone down and U.S. population is aging. The number of people who are drawing various entitlements, Social Security, Medicare and other benefits, it's rising. Right now it's about 40 million people and it's expected in 30 years to perhaps go as high as 80 million people, 86 million people in fact. That, however, means that with stagnant labor force, the burden on those who are employed will be significantly higher. And that's also in an era of really decreased U.S. labor productivity. So if you look comparatively around the world, the countries that have gotten into great economic stagnation, Japan, many countries in Western Europe, are precisely countries where labor productivity dropped off and birth rates leveled out with the burden of the ever-shrinking labor force being greater and greater vis-a-vis the longevity of people who are drawing benefits. And the U.S. has avoided that because of immigration, legal immigration as well as illegal immigration. Now, President Trump is determined not just to reduce illegal immigration or, in fact, to deport people, but also to significantly reduce legal migration. For example, endorsed a bill that circulated in the summer in the Congress to reduce the number of legal immigrants by half in 10 years. That has very bad repercussions for the U.S. economy. Now, the trade between the United States and Mexico it amounts to something like $580 billion a year. I think Mexico is the United States' second or third largest trading partner, vice versa. How would a wall that stretched all the way across the 2,000 miles of the border, how would it impact that trade, the trade of goods and services between the two nations? Well, the legal goods that are traded are traded, obviously, through the legal ports of entry. So a wall will need to accommodate those existing 52 legal points of entry. Presumably, if the war were to work at all, it would push illegal contraband more into the legal ports. 
So in that sense, the wall is not going to affect the trade. But I think there is a larger issue of symbolism that the wall is wrapped up with of larger U.S.-Mexico relations also connecting with the NAFTA negotiations. And so the wall can sort of poison the atmosphere for effective renegotiations of NAFTA. NAFTA is a very important trade deal between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. President Trump and many of his supporters have vilified it. They blame it as much or even more than immigrants for loss of U.S. jobs, quite falsely. But nonetheless, that's the widespread perception of Trump supporters and the president himself. But NAFTA is a document that was negotiated 30 years ago, and there are many opportunities to improve NAFTA in terms of intellectual property rights, in terms of biotech, in terms of new commerce and services that were not covered in the old treaty, labor standards, environmental standards, that is in the interest of both countries to negotiate and modernize. What, of course, the White House and the president seem to have been suggesting is negotiations that could even and NAFTA or that would go far more at what the president sees as unfair trade. And that would impact the jobs of potentially 5 million people in the U.S. that are directly linked to the trade. So those negotiations in terms of the economy are far more important than the wall itself. But the wall creates a huge political symbol and political atmosphere in Mexico as it does in the United States, and might just poison those renegotiations. Let's move on to the final topic that you explore in the essay, and that has to do with the communities in the environment, the ecosystem along the border between the two countries. And I think this really gets back to what you said at the beginning of this conversation about the wall being kind of a membrane, a, a place of exchange between communities and people and culture. And it's also a very much, I think, overlooked aspect of this whole issue. And so can you address the effect that a physical barrier along the border would have on the indigenous peoples who live in that region? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Fred, for raising that issue. It's one that I'm very passionate about, both the indigenous communities and the environment and the ecology that are tied about a new right that often gets much less focus. The president is aware and very dismissive of the issue. He complained that the previous fence was not built all the way and in the way that he would have hoped because of what he perceived as irrelevant or Native American ecological issues. 26 federally recognized Native American tribes live along the border and frankly not just along the border but across the border. They often have tribal lands, homelands, sacred sites and communities that span both sides of the border. Of course, the border was created by utter indifference to the existing communities there, and so it has cut through it. In the 1980s and 1990s, U.S. Congress recognized this historic injustice and passed a number of laws that allowed much freer exchange of people and travel between the native communities that span the border and recognize the cultural symbolic importance and really sense that people's homes and sacred sites were cut through by the border. When the fence was being built, often those laws, the, the legislations were often simply overridden and the division already went through many of the tribal lands. It didn't go through some, and the ironic and very sad effect was that in uh, parts of the border where you have tribes such as the Tohono O'odham Nation, 
and the fence was not constructed, drug traffickers would use those areas to carry drugs into the United States, often vastly damaging sensitive environment, other times imposing variety of violence on local communities or luring often very underprivileged, marginalized segment of U.S. population into the drug trade. So the native nations were damned by having the fence cut through their territories and then by not having the fence cut through their territory. The issues of the wall will just further put those pressures back on the front burner, will again raise issues of human rights, basic solidarity of U.S. residents. Then there is the issue of the environment. The border has many parts which are some of the most rich biodiversity areas in the United States. Places in Arizona or New Mexico are areas that are called sky islands, where many highly endangered and highly sensitive species are present and move between Mexico and the United States. Species such as the jaguar or sonoran pronghorn, Mexican gray wolf, variety of other species, not just mammals, but also birds, insects, frogs, reptiles. Butterflies make a great migration. Absolutely. Butterflies and bees, a crucial pollinator. So many of these issues are not simply biodiversity for the sake of biodiversity, but pollinators are crucial for U.S. agriculture, for Mexican agriculture, and they get affected by the wall. It's not that they cannot fly over the wall. Sometimes they cannot, but often for the wall to be effective, like the fence, it requires having lights on it. And as they migrate across it, they get attracted to the lights and they burn by the lights. So even pollinators can be badly damaged. And so these issues, again, are not just biodiversity for its own sake as much as we should treasure it. And in fact, the trade in the world is to recognize wildlife corridors and to move away from separating migration routes of animals by artificial borders. The United States, by the wall, is going very opposite of enlightened ecological conservation, but have real repercussions for agriculture. And what about water? I mean, it's one of the most important kind of bilateral issues between the two countries. Water sharing agreements are really important. You have the Colorado River and you have the Rio Grande. First of all, how would building a wall even happen at the water barrier of the Rio Grande? We talked about that earlier. But what effect does that have on water cooperation and water agreements and just water ecology in general? Well, I'm very glad that you raised that issue. It has not featured much in the debate surrounding the wall, but it's a very crucial one. Water sharing between the two countries has great repercussions for food security of people who live along the border, but often much deeper, way beyond the 100-mile barrier. It's important for manufacturing, hydraulic fracking, for agriculture, as well as ecosystems and ecology. At the time where the world is heading into much greater water scarcity and water stress, recent reports on how climate change affects the United States have really emphasized the significant water shortages that the U.S. might be facing and that Mexico is already facing. President Trump is dismissive of these reports, but the scientific evidence is overwhelming. So both of the rivers, Colorado and Rio Grande, are crucial for the border communities and beyond. They're governed by treaties that go back several decades, and particularly the Colorado River Agreement and the subsequent minutes, which are periodic every three-year updates to the treaty, have been hailed as some of the most innovative, efficient, and sensible water agreements 
On the Rio Grande, there is a treaty that says that no barrier can be built along the river that would impede the flow of the river. And so when the fence was being built along parts of it, Mexico objected and said that this is illegal. The U.S. ignored it and built the fence. Mexico today is once again saying that any wall that would be built along the wall is illegal in violation of the treaty. Why? Because whether it's the fence or the wall, it clogs during rains. And when it clogs, it can generate floods. And first of all, it can impede the replenishment of the river, but also it clogs and generates floods and can disturb the flow of the river. The floods have been a problem with the fence, and they have been a problem for the fence. Where the fence exists, including in the desert areas, when it rains, it really rains, and the fence gets regularly washed off. And even if there is a physical brick-and-mortar wall, the water will be undermining it, which generates costs beyond the construction, but the repair costs that we are speaking. But the floods that have been generated by clogging of the fence have severely impacted caused millions of damage in U.S. towns along the fence, as well as in Mexico, causing millions of dollars of damage in particular areas. And U.S. farmers, just like Mexican farmers, also don't want the wall or a fence because that impedes their access to water sources for agriculture, for livestock. There is so much to take in, Vanda, with your essay about the true costs of the barrier between the U.S. and Mexico, the wall. And I hope listeners will find this on our website and read it and try to understand it. How would you wrap up? How do you look ahead now that you've done this work and the work you're continuing to do? How do you sum up the idea that the president of the United States wants to build this huge barrier on the border and you've identified so many different costs associated with it? I think that the wall is a foolish project and not just misguided in terms of policy, I would say deeply misguided in terms of U.S. spirit. I go back to where we started, Fred, in the conversation and saying that the wall is really not just about separating the United States from Mexico, from, in fact, the rest of the world. It's about fundamentally, I think, redesigning how the U.S. thinks about itself. It's really about constructing walls of bigotry, of hatred in one's mind. And that, to me, is the sort of much more pernicious and much deeper and more lasting and damaging project than even the physical barrier, as foolish and ineffective and, in my view, waste of money and counterproductive as the physical barrier is. There is no doubt that it is both in U.S. interest and in Mexico interest to have a secure border. No border is ever 100% secure, but much of security comes from good cooperation. And it's the illusion that one can erect physical barrier and sacrifice cooperation that is motivating the wall. That illusion comes also with the costs of not recognizing the damage to human rights, to social relations, to the environment, and to the economy. That the wall and the broader project of native, essentially white Americans, really only defensive crouch against the world project that the president has embraced. Thank you, Vanda, for sharing your time and expertise. You can read the new Brookings essay on the wall at brookings.edu slash the wall. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, 
include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.